I would like to begin by reading one scripture from 2 Chronicles 16, verse 7 and following. Very familiar text, but I'd like to just give you a little background. King Asa had made an alliance with Ben-Hadad, which was the king of Syria. And he dwelt at Damascus. And the Lord sends Hanani, the seer, to King Asa of Judah, in verse 7, and said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Syria, and you have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore is the host of the king of Syria escaped out of your hand a defeat. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lumbums a huge host with very many chariots and horsemen? He's recalling a past victory. And how and says, Yet because thou didst rely on the Lord, he delivered them unto your hand. And the reason God did it, verse 9, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of him whose heart is perfect toward him. And then back again to his alliance with Syria. Herein you've done foolishly, and from there, therefore, from now on, you're going to have wars. Why? Because you've made an alliance with that which is not God. And your own struggles are created by your own misalliance. Now, to illustrate this text about God looking for a man's heart who is right and perfect toward him, that he might show himself strong in and through and on, we want to go back to the book of Judges, chapter 6. Judges, chapter 6. You'll turn there. We'll look together in Judges, chapter 6. Turn left from Second Chronicles and go back to chapter 6. We'll begin in verse 11. It's the familiar account of Gideon. And it says, There came an angel of the Lord and set under an oak which was in Orpha, and that means dust, that pertaineth to Joash the Abizrite, and his son Gideon threshed wheat by the vine winepress to hide it from the Midianites, living in bondage, living in fear. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. It's almost like you can hear him say, Who me? And Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all of this befallen us? And where be all his miracles which our fathers told us of, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this your might. What is his might he's speaking of? And you will save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? The strength of his going is the strength of God's sending. And then it says, and God said, to, uh, and, Ab and Gideon said back to him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Typical response to a call of God, of all flesh. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with thee, and you shall smite the Midianites as one man. A time when the enemy was lording it over the people of God, just like we live in today. And Gideon certainly didn't see himself as a mighty man of valor. Maybe you don't see yourself as that. Maybe you don't see as God sees the potential of God's work in you. Gideon dreamed of the days of past glory. Things that used to happen that perhaps looking back to the history books, like we look back to the New Testament church, and a longing heart, he was a man of the word. And the Lord says to him, I will be with thee. And that is the promise to Gideon. That is the strength of his life. And we see the struggle of a man who's facing the call of God. Lord, I'm weak. My family, my father's house, always looking at self, and he's weak. But you see, in verse 16, God's resource is his presence. I will be with thee. 
our lives are to be lived in the presence of God. Moment by moment. That is our resource for living. And so God confirms his word to Gideon in the next portion of that chapter. And then uh, Gideon, after being confirmed in the call and in the word of God, he begins to flesh it out in a very real way. Verse 25, where it always comes first, any real encounter with God, his family. His family. And it came to pass the same night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull, even the second bull of seven years old, and throw down the altar of Baal to foreign altar that your father hath made, and cut, it, cut down the grove that's beside it. And you build an altar to the Lord, an altar of Baal and an altar of the Lord that cannot coexist. Build an altar to the Lord your God upon the top of this rock in the ordered place and take the second bullock and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the grove or the ashtaroth that you've cut down. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did like the Lord had said to him. And so it was because he feared his father's household that the men of the city, that he could not do it by day, that he did it by night. Listen, faith is demonstrated not by fearlessness. He was afraid. Faith is demonstrated by obedience. And he obeyed, even in the face of danger. He stretched to the breaking point, and he then tears down the altar of Baal. Listen, you can't build an altar to God while the old altar is standing, and God will build a new altar on the ruins of the old. He tears it down. And what happens? The town, as they come, verse 29, they saw it, and they said to another, Who's done this thing? And when they inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, hath done this thing. And the man of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die. They're going to kill him. Because he's cast down the altar of Baal. He's disturbed the pet vices of the world. Because he's cut down the grove that was by it. And Joash said unto all that stood against Gideon, Will you plead for Baal? Will you save him? He that will plead for him, let him be put to death while it's yet morning. If he's a god, let him plead for himself, because one has cast down his altar. And so therefore, on that day, they called Gideon Jerob Baal, which is to say against Baal, and saying, let Baal plead against him, because he's thrown down his altar. And so God takes it home to Gideon's family, and if you want to know how to reach your family, instead of just nice words, obedience. You see, you want to reach your father. You want to reach your wife. You want to reach your loved ones. And you've been trying to be so nice and all these other things, the way of the world, perhaps even. Well, obey God at any cost. And Gideon's own dad, who was a Baal worshiper, then stood for Gideon in the power of God in a very real way. And when he attacks the enemy's altars, the attack of the enemy starts back on him in earnest. That's what always happens. Look at verse 33. Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the children of the east were gathered together, and they went over and pitched in the valley of Jezreel. But, you see, that is God's but to the enemy's plans. But, and here's always the answer, the Spirit of the Lord and it says literally, clothed himself with Gideon. God put on Gideon like a suit of clothes. But the, but the Spirit of the Lord put on Gideon. And he blew a trumpet God's way with a man. A type of preaching, a type of proclamation, a type of warning. And Abiezer was gathered after him. All the men of his father's tribe who were going to kill him when the Spirit of God came upon Gideon after obedience, a life of conviction he was living, then those very men who were going to kill him followed him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh who was gathered also after him. He sent messengers to Asher and to Zebulun and to Naphtali and they came up to meet him. Well, the hosts of darkness come out and they gather aggressively against the people of God. They blanket Jezreel in hundreds of thousands. And there they are, a fearful sight. And so God issues his call through his mouthpiece, Gideon. He blows the trumpet under the anointing and the nation is mobilized for war. 
Everyone comes out. You see, God gives a call, just like He gives a gospel call today. He says, you're to join the army of the Lord, the hosts of light. God gives a call through the preacher or through the man. And in chapter 7, we read in the first three verses, Then Jerob Baal, who is Gideon, and all the people that were with him rose up early and pitched beside the well of Hared, which means trembling. And so the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Moray in the valley. In other words, here they camped in kind of a hilly country right across this brook called Trembling, good name for it in this case, was hundreds and hundreds of thousands of the enemy. And here they came and surely the enemy knew they were there. And as they looked and saw Jezreel, if you've ever been there, the blanket of the enemy like grasshoppers across in verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, the people that are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites to their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand has saved me. Now, there are 32,000 men that Israel has here. 32,000. And against 200,000, that's not very good odds. And so, uh, now therefore, go to proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and fearful, let him return and leave from Mount Gilead. And there returned of the people 22,000, and there remained 10,000. 32,000 minus 22,000 is 10,000. Now, the 32,000, let me just say, is the crowd. You might want to jot this down. They're the crowd. And these might be called the drawn. These are the ones that initially respond to the initial call of God. Uh, come out against the enemies of God. The crowd comes out and they're all behind the bushes and they're initially calling, uh, responding to the call. And God says it's too many. You'll think that you did it. Send the fearful home. You see, somehow today we think that bigger is better. And we think that size is success. But you see, we can see that the, that the emphasis that we place on numbers shows us that we think there's power in them. And God is saying there's no power in numbers. As he said through Jonathan, he's not restrained, whether he saves through the many or through the few. He can save with his arm through one that's totally surrendered. God wants to remove the sources of their pride. And so he takes away all the confidence of their flesh. He's doing that to some of you. 22,000 go home. And those that have no taste for conflict and that are fearful, they're disqualified by their attitude. They are not in the front lines. They're sent home because they will not face conflict. They're afraid. And so, who are left? The courageous. The crowd is dispelled and you have 10,000 that are left the courageous. And whereas the 32,000 were the drawn, now we have the 10,000 that are the daring. The daring. 10,000 courageous men, the daring. Full of courage, brimming over with confidence, willing to fight, willing to sacrifice things they desired, willing to die for what's right. But I'll tell you something, as it says in verse 4, uh, that courage is not enough. The Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Still too many. You see, the crowd's not what he's after. And just to be brave is not what he's after. You see, God demands another quality in those who he puts on the front lines. And being part of the numbers or being part of the courageous is not enough. Valor is not enough to be a, some kind of a hero. That's not enough. And so, there's another filter. The Lord says in verse 4, Bring them down to the water, and I will try them there for thee. It's the brook of trembling, the place where trembling takes place. And it shall be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same will go with thee, and whoever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, the same will not go. And so he brought down the people to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Every one that laps of the water with his tongue as a dog laps, him shall you set by himself, and likewise every one that bows down upon his knees to drink. <clears throat> and here's how they did it. Likewise the number of them that lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, were 300 men. <clears throat> they reached down on the water, and they picked it up in their hand, and they went, 
like this and got water in their mouth out of their hand. But there was another group, you see. Uh, it says here, by the three, uh, but all the rest of the people bowed down upon their knees to drink water. So you have those that bow down on their knees and put their head down in the water and oh, it's so hot, it's so good. And then those men that just put their hand in the water and lap it like a dog. And the Lord said to Gideon, by 300 men that lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand and let all the other people go, every man to his place. And so the Lord took vittles from their hand and their trumpets and he said all the other of Israel, every man to his tent and he retained those 300 men, and the host of Midian was camped beneath them in the battle. So it was hot, and they were thirsty, and they were facing a battle, and they knew they needed to be refreshed, and certainly they'd been marching. And the Lord says, look, the men that lap like a dog, I'll use them. What's the test here? Well, you have a contrast between those men, 10,000 courageous macho men who were willing to fight and die, but you see, in the face of the enemy camped right over there, they have to loosen their harness on their armor to bow down, to put their face down into that water, and they splash their faces, and they take a big, long drink, and they forget the rules of war, that you don't drink a full load of water before you go out to fight. And also, the bushes along that river could have been an ambush at any moment through a party of the Midianites. And they were at ease when they should have been awake. And those men who were the, the real soldiers in heart put their hand into the water and kept their eyes ready and drank because they were ready for the battle. And they were men that were controlled. There's your third group. The controlled, the 300, the controlled, or you might say the disciplined. You have the 32,000 that are drawn you have the 10,000 that are the daring, and you have the 300 that are the disciplined. I think that is a pretty good percentage in today's terminology also. Less than 1% that you get down to in the final analysis. The control, and it's a picture here, not just of good old self-control, but spirit-disciplined men. Men that are spiritually in the warfare, you see. Men of self-denial. Not just courage. God doesn't need a man of just courage. He wants a man of self-denial and a man who's controlling his own appetites for the kingdom of God's sake, willing to sacrifice, willing to obey, willing to hold their convictions as a way of life, even in the face of incredible odds. These men were facing, sure, uh, tough times. So may I say that only these type of men could be trusted by God and the purposes of God in a crucial conflict. God didn't need just courageous men. He needed disciplined men because they're going to get up around the canyon, around the Midianites and those hills around Estraldon. And they're going to have 300 pitchers and 103 companies of 100. And at the no in the pitch darkness, they're going to have uh, lit torches inside of these clay vessels. And they're going to in silence in the darkness, line that camp, and in quietness, then at the, at the noise of Gideon, he blows the trumpet, and he says, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, and they break those, uh, those clay pots, and all of a sudden, there's whoop, lights all around the camp, and men are rubbing the, uh, stink, uh, the thing out of their eye, and they're looking up, and they're seeing that clouds of those smoking torches and those brilliant lights and the trumpets blasting and surely the terror of God must have come on them. But I'll tell you something, God didn't need those who were at ease in Zion. He needed those men who would not break those pitchers until the exact moment, who could stand in the face of what looked like destruction. He didn't need courageous men willing just to lay down their life. Listen, to obey is better than sacrifice. He needed the obedience. He did not need those just willing to sacrifice. And so may I say this to you, brother, and to myself. Those men, those 10,000 that came down to the river to drink, they didn't know that they were being tested by God. And the test of a real soldier, a test of one whom God is going to use against the enemies of the kingdom, always comes in the unconscious moment, 
God does not say, now this is a test. Oh, it's in your life that's tested. It's in the moment when you're not expecting it that our heavenly Gideon is coming through and categorizing men. Listen, he's going to categorize some of you this weekend. And it's just what it says to us in 2 Timothy. I'm reminded of that verse there in 2 Timothy chapter 2 where it says this. It says in verse 20, it says, In a great house are there not only vessels of gold and silver, but of wood and of earth, some to honor, some to dishonor. And if a man will purge himself therefore from these, and he's talking about wrong words and wrong doctrines, he will be a vessel unto honor, made clean, set apart, and fit for the master's use, prepared for every good work. May I say that in our day, I, bel I believe that our heavenly Gideon is going through the crowd who has responded to the initial gospel call. And he's thinning out its ranks because, you see, there are many that are afraid to face any conflict at all. And he's going through the churches, filtering out the army of God. And numbers and just courage is not what he's after. He wants courage, no question about it. Those 300 were men of courage also. But you see, courage was not enough. He said that he's going to use those who live a life of conviction, a life aware of the presence of God, self-control, you see, man's way is bigger and better, more quantity. But God's way is to seek the smaller and quality. Because he knows he can do more with that are pure than with an army that are vacillating. He can do more with a few men in here that totally sell out than a whole auditorium full of the crowd that are just along because, hey, let's go fight, let's go fight, yeah. Uh, you see, man will be separated unto God through discipline or he will be separated from God through lack of it. One or the other. May I ask you tonight, are you usable or are you being disqualified? In the unconscious moment at your job, in the flare of temper, when God brings you to the test and he's filtering out, listen, there are many who want to be used who are not usable. And God would love to use you. I hear people pray, Lord, use me, use me. I say, brother, pray God make me usable. And he'll wear you out. If you'll let him make you usable, you see, you may be disqualified through an area of your life. Some of you have told me this weekend that you're dealing with things. Well, brother, humble yourself. God will not humble you when he deals with you like that. If you're a Christian, he says, humble yourself. That's your work. His work is to convict. And Jesus did the same filtering as Gideon. Remember, he spoke and multitudes came out. They all were coming out to see. They were curious. In John chapter 6, there's about seven kinds of people. The curious, the aesthetic, the materialistic, on and on. The, those, just, uh, uh, those wanting to be taught and on and on. And at the end of that chapter, he filters them down. But there's multitudes, you see, those who come to hear. But there are some who are afraid to pay the price. And at the end of that chapter, it says that there were those who were of the multitudes. As he spoke, they didn't want to follow him anymore. He had a little group of disciples. And as he spoke about eating flesh and drinking blood, they said, this is a hard saying. We don't know about this. Talking about the cross and so the attractive ones left him. They left him. The multitudes, the followers, and then we come down to the few that he has brought to himself. Many are called, few are chosen. Few are chosen because they're not willing to pay the price. I'm not talking about a price of man's ability. I'm talking about a price of response to His divine availability. You see, that's a big difference. Jesus spoke to 500 men and said, Go into Jerusalem and wait for me there for the promise of the Father. In 1 Corinthians 13, we know He told them that. After His resurrection, He appeared to 500 brethren. How many showed up? 120. And I want to ask you something, brothers. What do you think happened to those other 380 on the morning of Pentecost? 
I don't think they got in on that. Because you see, they were not waiting there. They were not fasting and praying and controlling themselves like Peter and them must have been doing because it says this is that spoken by the prophet Joel. Joel also spoke about fasting and weeping and praying. And then will I pour out my spirit upon all flesh. They'd been there fasting, weeping, praying, humbling themselves before God. Multitudes, followers, the 120 in the upper room, down finally to 12 chosen disciples. You know what disciple means? Disciplined one, teachable, learner, the one who's controlled by the mind of God. And so God is looking for men of conviction, men who are disciplined by the Holy Spirit, Men who are motivated by God Himself, not just an image. Well, the only way to ever live a life of conviction is to live in the Holy Spirit. How be it when He has come? Brother, it thrilled me when you said that. That He will convict us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Those three things. A life of conviction is one that is lived in His dear presence, Christ and His cross continually before us, and moment by moment being our motive and our source as soldiers. Now, for the sake of application of this truth, I want to take this truth a little bit deeper and kind of change it a little bit and point out <clears throat> that everyone in this room, whether you're a Christian or not, and in a room this size, I would certainly believe there are those who have not trusted Him in a saving way. I believe that we've been praying for some of you that are not yet Christians, but every person in this room is motivated in their daily living by one of three things, and that is this, another threefold division. And if I were you, I would make three columns, and you might want to just jot these down because it's a tremendous truth. You're either motivated by convenience or crisis or conviction. And that conviction is what God is after. A life lived in the presence of God. Convenience, crisis, or conviction. Life motives. Of course, as you grow in different areas of your life, these will change. God will mature you. But you see, God wants to make us aware of the fact that He wants us to live a life of conviction. A life lived in His presence, constantly in His obedience, walking in His Spirit. And in the end, every overcomer will live his life by the Spirit of God in the conviction of God. God in His faithfulness will pressure us along the way from convenience to crisis to a life of conviction. <coughs> Brother, that may explain some of the problems in your life. It may not, but it might. God will get you there. He'll move you along the way. Now, let me then give you the characteristics of each of these individuals. A man who lives by convenience. What is the attitude of his heart? As he looks to the Lord, I'm talking about the Christian now, that's living by convenience. He's the one that says, Lord, give me. Now, you might want to write that down because it's going to be compared with another word of a, the other two men. The man who lives by convenience says, Lord, give me. The man who lives by crisis is saying, Lord, help me. Help me, Lord. And the man who lives by conviction says this, Lord, have me. Have me. Have me. The man who lives by convenience, let's zero in on him a little bit more. This man depends upon comforts. Comforts. The comforts of everyday life. Happiness. He's charmed by the world, and therefore the Word has no real effect in his life. Although he's sentimentally longing for it, he has no power with God. He is charmed by the world. Happiness is his motive, and comfort is his thing that lures him like a carrot with a donkey. He's preoccupied with his body. You see, a man who lives for comforts is preoccupied with his body as all the rest of the world is. So convenience depends upon comfort and is preoccupied with the body. The man of crisis depends upon his circumstances. You see, he's not caught up necessarily with comforts. 
He's depending upon circumstances and he's preoccupied with soul. Whereas the man whose convenience is preoccupied with body, this man is preoccupied with soul or self-preservation. He lives by crisis. He is having fear in his life all the time. Remember Gideon and those that were fearful? Well, he's afraid, you see. He's trying to keep his head above water. You ever said that? Just trying to make a living, just trying to live from fire to fire, uh, survive a day at a time, preoccupied with soul, preoccupied with keep the peace, don't rock the boat, living by crisis. And the man who lives by conviction, whereas the man of convenience depends upon comforts, and the man of crisis depends upon circumstances, the man of conviction depends upon Christ's presence. That's all he needs. That's all he wants. That's all he lives for. How be it when he has come, the Holy Spirit, he will convict. This man is a spirit-disciplined man, and whereas the convenient livers preoccupied with body and the crisis livers preoccupied with soul, self-preservation, the man whose conviction and living by it is preoccupied with what? Spirit. Spirit, the Spirit of God, living in the presence of God, the Spirit. And he's a man who's aware of the grace and the love and the truth of God in all of his everyday life. And conviction is willing to be laughed at, willing to be mocked, willing to be persecuted. The man of convenience and crisis will always look at a man of conviction and scratch their head and say, I just don't understand They'll be caught up with other things and they'll look at him and say, he's strange. They'll look at him and they'll even make, they'll even feel a little uncomfortable around him because he's the only one that doesn't snicker at the off-color joke that the one who lives by convenience and crisis will snicker at. You see, the man who lives by conviction is willing for grueling discipline. He's willing to deny himself water when he wants water. He's willing to deny himself sleep when God asks him to deny himself sleep or comfort or happiness or even safety, whatever. He's willing to live for that blessed river flow of God that he's drinking from. He can live without all his questions being answered. He doesn't always have to say, I don't understand. You see, there's no compromise for a man who lives by conviction. No coddling ease. He's sober. He's intent on one purpose. He's a man of one thing and he's a man of fervent love. I'll tell you, I'm excited at the way that God fit these messages together tonight without either of us knowing it. I would say he's trying to say something to us. Take David for an example. Let's take King David and see his journey from convenience to crisis to conviction. A man of conviction. Remember David as he lived for convenience? He was lounging on the roof when he should have been out in war fair with his disciples, with his men. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, what I would do on your notes is put David over here and underneath, over on the column and underneath convenience under David, put 2 Samuel 11, 1 to 4. And I won't read it. You can read it later. David was on the roof and he saw a woman. And he was living by convenience. He, everybody was fighting. He was at home. And as he was there living like most of the world lives, he saw Bathsheba and what he saw, he looked, he saw, he took. Just what Eve did, just what Lot did, just what Achan did. And therefore, God sent a crisis to bring him out of that living by convenience. What was his crisis? His crisis was when Nathan the man of God came in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 7, and stuck an old bony finger down his face and said, you're the man, after he told him a story about uh, something that was to reveal the secrets of David's hearts. And David had a crisis. He was confronted with the selfishness and the sin of his life. But David repented. And that's why, you see, he was a man after God's heart. A man after God's heart is a man who repents when he's confronted. He's not a man who's naturally good. He's a man who's honest with God. That's Scripture, 2 Samuel 12, 7, with Nathan the prophet. But David graduated into a life of conviction. 
In 2 Samuel chapter 23, we read these words in verse 15. The situation is this. They're out of Jerusalem, and David is longing for a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem. That's the convenience of a well. And they're at war. And so three mighty men broke through the host of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem, and which was by the gate, took it and brought it to David. And nevertheless, it says he would not drink. Why? Because those men had hazarded their life for him to live by convenience. And he took that water. He must have had drool coming out of his mouth. That cool cup of Bethlehemic water. He took it in his hand and he went, whoosh, he poured it out to the Lord. Because you see, he was a man of conviction. He was beginning to live by what he knew to be right. He disregarded his comforts. He disregarded his circumstances. And he lived by the presence of God. And another time he chose the punishment that God would give him. Think about Peter. Let's take Peter for an example of one whom God takes through the paces and goes over the hurdles of convenience to crisis, to conviction. In Matthew chapter 16, we know of Peter who confessed brilliantly, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, to Jesus. Jesus says, flesh and blood didn't tell you that. You got it from my Father. But then he turns right around when Jesus speaks of the cross and he says, Lord, don't let it happen to you like that. Pity yourself. Literally, it says, it won't happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You savor the things that be of man and not of God. You see, brother, you'll always spare someone else what you spare yourself. You'll never require a discipline of someone else that you're not willing to walk in yourself. That is, unless you're a hypocrite. But an honest man will never do that. And so he saw he was living by convenience. But then he comes to the crisis. God, we will be willing to die with you, Lord Jesus. We're willing to go and die with you. And remember, in the Gospel of John, and Peter really was, he was a man of courage. He was a big burly fisherman, and God wants men of courage, certainly, but more than natural courage. And in chapter 18 of John, verse 10, when they came to arrest Jesus, it says, Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. You know, I believe that means Peter was left-handed. Whoever leans into a sword when it's coming at you, you lean away from it. And he went, whoosh, and that cut off his right ear. That's just a conjecture. I don't know that is. But uh, the servant's name, that's observation, interpretation, application, uh, application of the sword. The servant's name was Malchus. And then Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. The cup which my father has given to me, shall not I drink it. He's making the graduation from crisis. Crisis, being willing to die with Jesus even to even a further step, living by conviction, taking the loss in your own self. The crisis of self-exposure came for him in Matthew 26. Crisis, verse 69 through 75. We won't read it, but you know what happened? He thought he was strong. He thought he was a man of courage. But when it came down to the wilting things of the Holy Spirit, living by conviction, he denied the Lord three times, the third time with blasphemy and an oath. And brother, so would you, if it weren't for the grace of God. Have you ever seen that? You'd do it. You'd do it. I would do it if he didn't hold me. I know I would. I have it in me to deny him if it weren't for his holding hand. But then thanks be to God for his graduation through many dangers, toils, and snares, Peter came. And after, after the Spirit comes, you know, a lot of men say, I identify with Peter. I always want to say, which Peter do you mean? Before or after Pentecost? Because he was a different man. After the anointing of God came upon him in Acts chapter 3, the very thing that Peter had done, once he'd become a man of conviction, he stands up in verse 11 and he begins to preach. And going down uh, Acts chapter 3, down uh, in, in after Pentecost, verse 11, uh, down through verse 16, he's preaching. And it says uh, in verse 14, as he preaches to the crowd, 
You denied the Holy One and the just, and you desired a murderer to be granted to you. You see, Peter had become a man of conviction, and his weakness became the source of his strength. Ian said earlier how our strengths can become a source of failure, while our weaknesses can become a source of strength. He had denied the Lord, and the Lord equipped him with the Spirit, and he became a mighty man of God, till later he could write under conviction of the Holy Spirit in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 and 13, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial that's to try you as if some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, and that's His presence, that you may be glad with exceeding exaltation. Oh, there are men that failed in that same way too, like Lot, who was with Abraham, who was a man of convenience. Even while he was with Abraham, he pitched his tent towards Sodom. He loved the world. And then he became a man of crisis. God warned him, get out of there. I'm going to blow this place up. And all the uh, homos with it. You know, there was a thing called, I won't say that. I won't even say that. They were talking about homophobia, this new thing of AIDS, this fear of AIDS. I called it queer fear. Uh, sorry. Uh, maybe that's not very nice. I don't know. Uh, in Genesis 19, verse 12 to 14, it spoke about how when God said to uh, Lot, get out, his own sons wouldn't even believe him. You're mocking and you're just pretending. He didn't have a testimony. A man of crisis doesn't have a testimony. And Lot never became a man of conviction. You hear of him uh, no more after he sleeps with his own daughters and fathers the Moabites and the Ammonites, perpetual thorns in the side of Israel. But God said amazingly that he was one of the called. But you see, he wasn't one of the chosen in the sense of being on the front lines. He was never heard from again. And Noah lived a long time after he took the drink, after the flood indeed. He was a man who lacked conviction or the control of the Spirit. A life of conviction. It's not a life of self-effort, but a life of dependence on the Holy Spirit. You see, it's a life that's faced convenience and turned its back on it. Conviction. And conviction is a life that's faced the crisis and doesn't fear it. Conviction is a life that's obedient to God because of the blessed presence of God. Are you living in the presence of God? Do you see your job as in the presence of God? Do you see brushing your teeth as in the presence of God? Or do you see it merely a convenience? Do you see your job as one crisis to another? Or is God in it? Because I'll tell you something, brother. If it's not in faith, it's sin. And wherever things are in faith, God will bless it. Every man that's ever used by God had to pass the hurdles of crisis and convenience and become a man who lived by conviction. Think of Moses in Hebrews 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he'd come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than rather to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, he esteemed the dishonor of Christ. Greater riches than all the treasures in Egypt. He'd rather be persecuted with the believers than be wealthy with the unbelievers. For he had respect to the repayment of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. He endured as seeing him who is invisible. A life of conviction. Moses. But you see, Moses didn't hold his ground, as we heard earlier, and as we'll see in a moment. You see, every man ever used by God, and any of you that's the same, will have to become a man of conviction. And the pressure of God is to get you there. You may be in crisis now in your life. He's moving you out of convenience. You should be there by choice in conviction, but your faithful Father will bring you there if you'll let Him. He's a gentleman. It's the undefiled that are the undefeated. And it's the yielded life that's the wielded life by God. Soldiers that are controlled and yielded to God. I believe God is in our midst. God is in our midst and He's saying to us, drink. And how you drink 
will make all the difference. How you drink will make the difference for you, whether you will go home and not be on the cutting edge, or whether you will be those who will stand against the hosts of darkness in the days just ahead. Go home and live a life of happiness, Jesus making your little life meaningful, great, great for you. Go home and live a life, just a successful business, no crisis, everything's smooth, it's wonderful. How boring. Go home after you fight the fight of faith. Go home that home. Not home home on earth, but home in heaven home. Home there. After you've lived in the tent, after you've been at the altar, and a perpetual living sacrifice to God. May I say this tonight, God has no favorites. He favors those who fear Him. And no matter how long you've walked with Him here in this place, or how much He's used you, or how much you have loved Him in the past, we must be and remain men who are more than courageous but controlled. Disciples, disciplined men. Men of the cross, spirit convictions, holy control, living moment by moment in His presence. If not, you'll be sent home. God won't use you on the front lines. One of the most glaring examples is the one that our brother made mention of, Moses. Moses. And you can jot this scripture down and read it later. I won't read it for the sake of time, but in the book of Numbers... Chapter 20, verses 7 through 12. And in Numbers chapter 27, verses 13 and 14, we read of Moses. I'll read you 27, verse 13 and 14. The Lord says to Moses, when you have seen it... Uh, let me just give you the background before I read that. Moses brought the people back to the rock that he had smitten with the rod before and waters had flowed out. God said, speak to the rock this time. Don't hit it. The rock's supposed to be Christ and you don't re-crucify him. He's smitten with the rod. That's the law. And you don't have to do it again. Speak to the rock and rivers of water will flow out and feed the people of God living waters. And Moses was so angry with the rebellious, stiff-necked church of that day, the pastor, he got upset he says, you stiff-necked people, how long will I have to put up with you? Oh, he'd lost sight of it. All those years he'd been living by conviction when he left Egypt, living, leading 303 million men and women by conviction, and he gets to the point where presumption takes over, and he ceases to be a man of control. God brings him up to the top of the mountain and says, Moses, look, you shall see the land, and then you're going to be gathered to your people like your brother Aaron was gathered. You rebelled against my commandment in the desert of Zin, in the strife of the congregation, to sanctify me at the water before their eyes. Moses, you're through. Come home. What an awesome thing. Moses, you're through. Come home. Because he was not a man of control. He was not a man of continual consecration under the power of the Holy Spirit. Presumptive. Well, what about Elijah? One of the greatest prophets in all of the Old Testament. Well, we read of just after this experience that our brother made mention of earlier again, Elijah. He slew those 400 prophets of Baal. What a glorious thing. And then he was afraid of a woman. And he ran to Sinai or Horeb. And as he was there, uh, the Spirit of God came to him in First the wind and the fire and the earthquake and he wasn't in those and the still small voice came and Elijah, what are you doing here? Lord, they've persecuted all your prophets and I, even I, am the only one left. What's it sound like? Pride. I'm the only one left that's walking with you in this lousy town, God. Where are everybody else that's walking with you? I'm the only one that's really serving you. And God gives him twice. He says it, Elijah repeats it twice. And in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 19, you just jot it down, or you might want to even read it. I think I'll read this one to you because it's an awesome verse. In the book of 1 Kings, chapter 19, God says to him in verse 15, And the Lord said to him, Go, 
Return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you come, anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shall you anoint to be king over Israel. And get this, Elisha, the son of Shaphath, of Abimeloah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your room instead of you. You're through, Elijah. That's it. He ceased to be a man of conviction. And God said, you're through. You're washed out in my service. That doesn't detract from all that he did, but I wonder what could have happened. What about Saul, King Saul, as he was picked by, by uh, as the first king and he prophesied, he was a man head and shoulders above everybody else. And although he was not God's first choice for Israel, he was a man whom God would have used. He's no respecter of persons. And Samuel loved Saul and gave him instructions. And Saul was living for convenience and he was living by crisis. And as he waited seven days and Samuel didn't show up, he presumed himself to offer the offering that Samuel had said, wait until I'm there to offer. And he in 1 Samuel chapter 15, 1 Samuel chapter 15, heard Samuel coming to him. That's the famous chapter when God says to him, to obey is better than your sacrifice. Rebellion is like witchcraft. And stubbornness is as idolatry. In 1 Samuel verse 26, chapter 15, Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned around to go away. Saul laid hold upon the skirt of his mantle, and it tore and Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to the neighbor of yours that's better than you. A man that's controlled. David was a disciplined man. Day by day, he cared for the flock. Even he, he took his brother's thing, but he went back and fed the flock. He was a man of discipline. Someone better than you. And the strength of Israel will not lie or repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. And Saul had a little twitch of would-be repentance. But then he said, don't tell the people what I've done. Oh, he's living by crisis still. And not willing to humble himself, brother. Humble yourself. And obey the Lord. Disqualified because of partial obedience. Listen, I believe partial obedience is total disobedience. When God's spoken to us and said, obey me. To obey Him with a half heart is to disobey Him. To him who knows to do good and doesn't do it, it is sin. Disqualified in the unguarded moment, Moses, Elijah, and Saul, and many others. Gehazi, Elijah, Elijah's, Elisha's servant, he was disqualified. In the moment that he did not know that God was there, marking him out if he could be used. Is it any wonder that the Apostle Paul cried out in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Verse 27, he cried out these words, this same principle, you see. But I buffet my body, and I bring it to subjection, lest by any means, when after I've preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. A man who's made it easy on himself. A man who's serving for preservation of himself. A man who is no longer a man of conviction. Oh, brothers, what's the answer for all of this? Well, turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And the words of our Lord Jesus Christ come to us again tonight. Some of you in here are being tested as to how you're drinking this living water that's coming forth. And some of you will doubtless be rejected because you will not be willing to be more than just part of the crowd and just a man willing to die naturally, you will not come into that life that's willing to subject itself to the scrutiny and blessing of God at every moment, living by His conviction, by His presence. And so after Peter's word of pity yourself, Lord, living by convenience, then in verse 24, the Lord said to His disciples, He's saying to those disciples, 
men who are willing to follow him. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life, means soul, will lose it. You see, that's a man living by crisis. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. That's a man living by conviction. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Looking at verse 24, the answer is given to us. How can I live a life in his presence? How can I live a life of conviction? Well, number one, which says, let him deny himself. That's the call of Jesus. And that self-denial, brothers, is the answer to convenience. That's it. That's the, that's the answer. Let him deny himself. Well, that's the answer to the man who will live by convenience. Don't live by your own convenience. Listen, this cleans out the crowd considerably, doesn't it? It certainly does. And then he gives, well, this is freedom from the lust of the flesh. Then secondly, he gives the second filter and let him take up his cross. That's the answer, brother, to crisis. Listen, the imperative to be freed from self-preservation is a man who's faced the cross. And I'm going to tell you, the man who's honestly faced the cross has faced the ultimate crisis. That's the answer for the crisis. He's faced the cross. And there is no other crisis, brother, after you face the cross and its full meaning. I mean, you will not be moved because you're a dead man. If I were to take a gun and come to Joe and shoot him between the eyes, I'll guarantee you this, tomorrow it wouldn't bother him a bit that his boss yells at him. It wouldn't bother him a bit. That woman that was improperly dressed walking by him, it wouldn't bother him. I don't know if it bothers you, brother, but if it does, repent. Uh, this is the life of conviction. Lord always singles out. No, I'm kidding. Nobody knows who Joe is anyway on the tape, so that's good. Let him, it says, let him take up his cross. It's the answer to crisis. And you can't frighten a dead man. You can't do it. So let him deny himself. That's the answer to convenience. Let him take up his cross. That's the answer to crisis. And then let him follow me. Here is the life of conviction. As he is, so are we in this world. As I was sent, so send I you. He that saith he abideth in Christ, ought himself, the one saying it, also to walk even as Jesus walked. And he lived by every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God. He was a man of conviction. He was not only God in the flesh, he was a man of conviction. And this, then, is the life of real faith, brothers. And some of you are being tested You've been coming from the crowd. And now you've said, well, I'm willing to pay the price. You're a man of crisis. Yeah, you've been through that filter. But God's saying to you, I want to make you a man of conviction. I want to make you a man of control. I want you to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. That's the glorious positive. Uh, the deny yourself and take up your cross are the filters, but the glorious positive of taking your cross and following Him, participating in His life. This is an ongoing faith. And those of you who are not willing to be disciplined in your daily life by the Holy Spirit and to become men of self-control, which is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, you just simply will not be used by God. You just won't be. Except maybe like Balaam's ass to speak a word that you didn't even understand. You see, the only life that God can really use is a man who's been to the cross and not only been to it, but taken it up and following Him. Get this tonight. If you're walking contrary to the Word of God and you aren't being convicted about it, it's because you don't know His presence. Because if His presence is in your life, you will know the agony of what sin really means. You will. And He as a Father will chasten. Do you have any realization what a privilege it is to be disciplined by God as Father? Who the Lord loveth, 
he chastened it. So hear the rod, and who hath appointed it? Your heavenly Father. Submit to the knife and pray that third prayer. Lord, have me, no matter what it costs. You see, you can recite the Bible by memory and still be dead. You can be active in service and still be dead in the fullest sense of the word. It takes the life of God in the soul of man, breathing forth as rivers of water. Are you living in the presence of God? Are you? Answer God. Are you living in the presence of God? Are you doing all unto Him and by Him and through Him? And may I say tonight, woe be to the religious trifler in this room because God has knit these words together in both messages, and he's brought this meeting to a crescendo. It's a fearful place to be here tonight for the religious trifler and the one who will treat God like a Sunday afternoon buffet. Pick and choose. Well, you will go home and you will never see the conflict against principalities and powers and you'll never count for God. You'll be a castaway in the sense of useless unless you face this final filter, brother, He's been dealing with you. I know He has, some of you. You've been men that are willing to die in certain situations, but you've been men who've not been willing to face the daily task of becoming disciplined by the Holy Spirit in your life, submitting to prayer and devotions and the things of God in the fullest sense. If you don't deal honestly with God, you'll experience a hardening of your heart. And let me tell you, that's a fearful thing. His voice will get softer. Well, what will you do tonight? What will you do tonight? Will you enter in permanently once and for all when God says, drink, brothers, drink of the water of life freely? Everything might depend on how you drink tonight, of the well of obedience. How you drink, whether you look around to see who cares, who's watching, or whether you unashamedly drink. Our response, the test in the unconscious moment, testing you, seeing if you are the one that's responded to him in such a way yet that he can really use. Back to the tent. Back to the altar. Back to the Word of God over those hurdles, and they are hurdles, of convenience and crisis to a life that's full of joy lived in his presence, in your presence is fullness of joy. You kind of dry lately? Well, get in His presence. Thy way, O Lord, it says, is in Thy presence. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He wants to put on your life like a set of clothes, like He did Gideon. But see, you have to be willing to obey like Gideon did and tear down the altars of Baal and build a monument like Abraham did to God in a foreign land and be willing to live by conviction. And so we will trust our God with that word. And I want you to bow your heads with me. And we're going to ask for the response to the Holy Spirit. We're going to ask for the response to the Spirit of God. Give me this. Give me that. That's the language of the younger brother. Father, give me my inheritance. Are you a man of crisis? Oh God, help me out of this. Oh God, get me out of this. Living, watching what's going on around you. Or are you a man who wants to live in the conviction of the presence of God, hidden in the hollow? of His blessed hand. Not a blast of worry, not a surge of care. God, the secret place of the Most High, in the presence of God, abiding there. Where are you tonight? Will you be honest with God in this moment as we pray together? Heavenly Father, There's nothing that man can do in this moment. You're passing through. 
You're in the lives of many, many in this room. You want to use us in our jobs and in our homes and in other places. Our heavenly Gideon, welcome into our midst. But our very response to your command categorizes us in the warfare of God. May we be in that minority, that remnant, that few of God that find it way, the narrow, the straight, those who do the will of God our Father. May we be in that few, those joyous few, who come singing unto Zion with everlasting joy upon our heads because the presence of God is our walk. The way of holiness, and there'll be no lion there. Those who are the undefiled, the holy ones of God, who walk continually in the light of your presence. Oh God, tonight may this be the consuming passion of our heart, and we bow before you, Perhaps there are those of you who need to make an altar and get on it. Well, you can do that if you choose to get on your knees. You pray that way, brother. Don't. There's no need for a move just because I've said that. But feel free to get on your knees. And we're going to have a season of prayer. And I urge you to obey God and enter in permanently. Present once and for all your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. Not just as I am without one plea, not for the Christian, but cleaned up, willing to live by the Spirit of God. And for those that are not believers, come just as you are. Forget your promises to God and meditate on His promises to you. We're now open for prayer. Will you cry out to Him? And the Spirit and the Bride say, Whosoever will, let him drink of the water of life freely. If you knew who it is, that said to you, give me to drink, you would have asked of Him for water. And the water He would give to you would make it so that nothing would ever be a thirst to you again. We trust you to bring forth that work that you're doing in the invisible that no man can be a secret disciple is proven in the scriptures. May those who have yielded to the power of the Spirit of God feel free, believe free in these ensuing moments of this time together tonight and tomorrow to gladly own you. How can we say we love you when we're afraid of men? Oh, Lord God Almighty, we give this night to you the remainder of it. And I ask that a strange uneasiness would rest upon the souls of those who must deal with thee, and that a glorious bliss would fill the hearts and minds of those who have yielded all. Just thank you, Lord.